If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. We have a special guest all the way from my hometown, Philadelphia, PA, Mr. Mina Mishriki, who is the senior, don't get it confused, the senior partner at Merida Capital. Right. Like, so, Mina, senior, does that have anything to do with like age? Do they go from age group and senior? Or is that a, an actual title that you inherit? Well, there, there, there is a correlation, but I, um, I've actually dropped that entirely. I think it's just, you know, just nonsense. So I just call myself a partner. Right. Um, we work for uh, Mitch Baruchwitz, who you know, who's been a guest uh, on your pod and, and, uh, and he runs a very flat organization. And so none of these, none of these titles mean, mean much, but Mitch and I work closely together and I run the investment team and, and uh, you know, it's an honor to be on this podcast with a, with a fellow Philadelphian at a time when Philadelphia is peaking right now. Uh, big weekend coming up with the Phillies and the Eagles. And yeah. The Sixers starting their season next year. So I'm sure we could geek out on that, but uh yeah, I'll be uh, happy to talk about that. I mean, it's it's so it's so it's so amazing the the Eagles like there. So I live in L.A. and you can see people walking around with Eagles stuff on, it and you just sort of you know once in a while you're you're encouraging one of hey you know Eagles and it's I didn't see that uh, before in L.A. as much as I do now. There's also an Eagles bar 
that you can yeah, go Santa to. Santa Monica. Yeah, Santa Monica. And there's there's a temple bar. So I went to Temple and mm. like Temple people get together and now watch Eagles games because we have a, a Temple alum that plays for the Eagles. So it's a big, it's a big deal too. San Reddick, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome, man. That's that's great. Um I will say just one last, one last, I won't bore people with football, but uh, I have, I'm a season ticket holder and I take my nine-year-old son to every game and we sit in the upper deck and there's something very special about uh, the joy that it brings him despite the uh, curse words and drunks that are around him at every game. But it's, it's, it's good. It's good education for him. Well, so, all right. I used to go to uh, veteran stadium and sit in the 700 level. And last time, you know, it's been years, but since I've been to Link and I was there when it first uh, opened, I didn't find the same energy. Sitting in the it's 700 not, level, it, that is different. It's not the same. You you, you had the real experience. And uh, so those, I, those were the good old days. I have a couple of stories really quick since we're getting into it. So there was two guys I remember. One of them was a guy that would burn all the team's hats and he would put them on a rope. So he had all these hats and he would, as we're beating the team, he would burn the hat and, and then, you know, do all the Eagle stuff. And then Dallas games were the worst, obviously, because I don't understand why people would ever wear any Dallas gear to the vet, which was crazy. At the time that they had uh, Seamus, the judge that was at the in the basement of the of the vet, so they could kind of process people as they get arrested. And I remember this one guy, and he was talking smack, and they pummeled him, and then they took his sneaker, and it was just like a trophy. Everybody was parading with his shoe. So that's the seven hundred level. It was insane. Sounds about right. Yeah, I think you have a you have a you have a richer crowd now. Um, there's still. Uh, if you wear an opposing uh, team's jersey, you're going to be, you know, called an a-hole and, you know, a slurry of other things. Uh, but it doesn't really get serious. And, you know, people that are worried about wearing whatever jersey they, whatever team they support into the, into the stadium, it doesn't really matter anymore, except, except for Cowboys weekend. And I would say the New York Giants weekend and yeah. maybe to a lesser extent, the red, the, not the, the Redskins, the commanders. What a, um, a dumb name, by the way. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, it is what it is. So it's funny. We're right. The Phillies are playing the Braves and they're doing the, the Tomahawk chant. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you know, why, ha- why hasn't, uh, why haven't people come down on that? But anyways, or the chiefs, there you go. Or the, they do the same thing. Um, Okay, so let's let's get into you and uh, you know introducing you to our audience. Uh, where did you actually grow up? Uh, so I grew up not too far from you in Northeast Philly in Oxford Circle, um, and uh, first generation parents had a small veterinary clinic. Uh, American Dream um, came to you know, parents came to this money with 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 came to this country with no money and, and, and made something of themselves and, and, uh, um, and, uh, went to high school in the burbs, grew up playing against Kobe Bryant. We were arch rivals and in high school and graduated together, played together, played against each other for five or six years and knew him pretty well. That's really my claim to fame. 
um, and then played college ball at Penn and, and, uh, eventually into the banking world, which is a boring story, um, but wasn't fulfilled and, um, decided to enter the cannabis industry, uh, in 2016. So, so it's been some time. Did you have, uh, any siblings or do you two have younger, siblings? two younger brothers and, uh, um, and, uh, you know, they're, they both outshine me. One's a, yeah, wires, airplanes and aircrafts and, uh, he went to MIT and, you know, the other is, uh, a teacher, um, and, uh, uh, you know, doing God's work and, and is getting his, uh, graduate degree EHD at Columbia university. So good kids. Very cool. But I'm the old, I'm the oldest and I hang it over, over their heads. <laughs> so childhood wise. So I, I kind of, I, I know where you, uh, where you grew up. I, I, I used to live in, in Fox Chase and I used to live in Northeast and Fox Chase. And I moved to Bucks County. Uh, that's, that's where you sort of migrate there, you know, in my, in my, uh, sort of neighborhood. But did you live like above where your parents' business was? Oh yeah. I we grew up on top of the animal clinic and my job, uh, Growing up was to clean the kennel and to go around the neighborhood and pick up, uh, newspapers, um, that, so that we could bring that back to the kennel and, and, and use that, uh, on the bottom of, of the kennels for the, the small dogs and cats. So that was my upbringing. Yeah. So I was going to say what, I mean, it must have instilled some work ethic in you. Did you have, so I guess two types of questions. Did you have any aspirations for going into that industry uh, when you were a kid? Or were you like, that's exactly what I don't want to do when I grow up because it's such a pain in the ass of cleaning, you know, dog shit, basically? A little of both. So I, I you know, being first generation, uh, families from Egypt, and, and uh, we, um, I was always raised to go into medicine or engineering, you know, just very typical. Um, and my experience, you know, with the, my, my parents actually, you know, my father, he wasn't a great communicator, you know, and, and so being a vet was perfect for him. You know, you didn't have to talk to his patients and he just had a way with connecting with animals, you know, in a way that, you know, was really special. Um, but he always pushed me to uh, against going into the veterinary business. He, he, he wanted me to be a, a doctor. Uh, you know, at the time the thesis was, oh, you can make a lot more money being a doctor and you're smart enough and, and that's what you should focus on. I never want you to be a veterinarian. And, um, and so he kind of pushed me away from it. And then, of course, cleaning up shit when I was growing up didn't help either. But, um, uh, <laughs> so I got to, when I got to Penn, when I got to college, I, you know, it took a couple of weeks of biology. My thought was I was going to be pre-med and, um, didn't have a lot of confidence in myself um, and, and, and kind of just decided, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm not going to make it more, more, not that I didn't want to do it, but more, you know, I just felt like I didn't have, I didn't have, you know, the, the, um, the fortitude to get through, you know, the whole process. And, you know, it's a long process, of course. And, um, you know, looking back on it, you know, uh, I think there's nothing more noble than helping people. Um, and you know, you know, now I'm just a, you know, I'm a finance professional and I'm helping people in my own ways. 
um, yeah, which I think, you know, feels so special to be part of the cannabis industry because there's a more direct um, way to help, to help folks in my seat. Um, but, you know, part of me is always thinks, you know, I wish I had gone down that path. Um, and that's why I feel fortunate to be at a, you know, an investment shop that focuses on the medicalization of the space. And that's of course why we're working together and, and we, I'm sure we'll get into all that, but, um, yeah. But <clears throat> you said something interesting about lack of confidence and, and fortitude and that stamina to be able to succeed. But, you know, there's a couple of things. First of all, you were an athlete and you were, you know, a, a good athlete to play against uh, Kobe and, and then make it to uh, playing in college. That's one. Number two, you also got into Penn, which is, you know, a great school. It's very difficult to get into. So what was what was that like? What was that voice in your head that was saying to you? I've achieved so much. I'm a high achiever already. What was that voice that was saying to you? you're just not good enough to make it there or would did you just not have the passion for it to kind of pull you through those lulls? Well, you know, first of all, very kind of you to, uh, uh, to say that Kobe averaged about 30 to 40 points every game he played me and I sat the bench in college. So, um, wasn't that good, but, uh, you know, I think more than anything, uh, you know, it, I, I might've been, I don't know, drinking, uh, uh, and smoking a lot of cannabis and maybe that was part of it. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I had a passion to learn when I was in college, like I do now. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest factor. So it's interesting. I, I love to learn, but I hate to study and college and high school. It just wasn't for me. The way that I was taught didn't really connect to me unless I really was passionate about a class. So I remember like there were certain classes I went to and I went to three different high schools and all this other stuff, but certain classes I could sit there and partially because of my ADD, but partially because the way that we are being taught things, if I don't have, if I'm not stimulated, I'm not connected to that. I'm not interested. I won't learn even though I want to. And in college, same thing, but it was better because I could got to choose some classes. So I had like this one class called intellectual heritage at Temple, which taught about, you know, all the different religions, all the different theologies. And I was like, this is cool. I'm interested in that. I want to learn. And the learning came easier because I was interested in that. Or there was another class about deviant behavior. So I'm like, oh, I get to experience what serial killers think about and, and learn about that. But so the passion of learning is there. It's the way that you're being taught. And one more example, like uh, books. So I love to, I love books. I love uh, consuming books, but reading is not the way that I like to consume books. I, I, I used to read like three books at a time because I get bored with one and I start falling asleep and pick up another one. But audiobooks, man, that just opened things up for me. I inhale those things. I can't stop. I'm hiking. I'm at the gym. Anytime, you know, I'm just listening to stuff. So was it more that you weren't, and, and obviously cannabis and, and partying, all that takes takes some of that. But was it more like the the way that you you have a passion for learning? It's just not the way that they, you're being taught, studying, or you just uh, said, "Hey, you know, this isn't the something that I, I'm really interested in in pursuing." You know, I, I think um, 
It's interesting. It's an interesting question because it's something we, my wife and I debate all the time because, you know, our, we have three kids and, you know, they're, they're, I, I grew up, you know, you know, first generation, went to school, came home, had a tutor outside of school, you know, was just, uh, you know, just very rote and dry. Um, and, you know, kind of got used to that and was able to succeed you know, just, you know, by sticking to it. Um, and, uh, you know, my kids are getting a progressive education right now. And the, really the focus is, is, is really helping them find their passion and focusing on that and channeling that as an avenue to learn, which sounds like would have been great for you as a child. Um, and, um, and it's something I struggle with too, because I'm like, eh, you know, like they're teaching them different methodologies, you know, long addition, they're, they're going from the left to the right, and then they're going from the right to the left. And my kid doesn't know how to carry the one and go from the right to the left. And what are they doing? And, you know, but, you know, what they're trying to do, and what I'm slowly understanding is, they're trying to teach kids, you know, not only I mean, some kids aren't passionate about math, but they're, they're obviously focusing on on their passions and, and, and leveraging that. But also, you know, on some of these kind of drier topics, it's all about learning things in different ways. And, uh, you know, allowing them to bring logic into the equation in a way that I wasn't taught when I was growing up. And I appreciate that now, because you see this, this bass guitar in the background, you know, I picked this up late in life. And I'm teaching myself this now. And it's very much going through that process that my kids are going through. And I get it. You know, it's, it's not how I grew up, but I, I, you know, I understand it. I think to go back to your original question, I think the biggest issue that I had was it took me, you know, 40 years to find what I was passionate about. And I couldn't find what that, what that thing was. And Wharton and Penn was very much just a default business was just a default. It was just, this is, you know, people can make money in this world and I don't really know what it's about, but, you know, I'm pretty good at math and, you know, I can figure things out and, you know, maybe, maybe I just, you know, default to this and see where it goes. I mean, that's really what it was. And it took me a long time to figure out, you know, uh, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, when I was on wall street, I felt like I was, uh, acting in a way, right? I was, you know, kind of filling a role that, um, that, uh, wasn't necessarily me. And, you know, every Sunday I would get a case of the scary Sundays and then you get, you get to work on Monday and, you know, you start that, um, you know, that role again. And I don't get that anymore. I, I love what I do and it's a different kind of pressure. Um, but, uh, it took a long time to find that passion. And I think that, you know, you know, that's, why I have an appreciation for this progressive education is trying to hone in on helping kids find that passion early would have been so beneficial to me too. Yeah. I have a very similar kind of trajectory in life. Uh, so you went from Penn to, was it Deutsche Bank or was it? Well, a bunch of places in between, but I, right. I had a long stint at, uh, at Deutsche Bank and right. um, yeah. So, I went to Pricewaterhouse, or yeah, Pricewaterhouse at the time before it was PwC, and like what you just described was I I felt so out of place, but I was connected. I'm like, well, I'm making a paycheck, I'm buying a house, I'm doing this, 
But I felt so out of place because I used to have long hair and I wear earrings and all this stuff. And I put my hair in a ponytail, put on a suit. And it was just so not me. But what I realized, and then working for you know a venture capital company, then doing commercial real estate, uh, being a broker, and, and doing what I'm passionate about now, I always knew in the back of my head that I had passions, like things that I did no matter what, like cannabis was huge for me. Music was huge for me, but I just never actually thought, I'm like, how do I merge those two together? But all those experiences that I went through at PWP and, and commercial real estate and all that stuff, I know there's bits and pieces of all that stuff that I use now in, in business, which I'm actually passionate about what I do. And it's because, you know, helping people and giving back all the things that you talked about. But if I didn't have those experiences, I may not be in the same position I am now, not only find my passion, but because that experience is global. It's like you're taking bits and pieces of everything else that you did and you're putting it into your passion. And I think that that helps you be more successful. There's a lot of people who are passionate about music and are playing at bars around LA all the time. And it's great. And they still have to, you know, you know, fix whatever mailboxes on, on the side to make ends meet. And they may be happy, but if they were had a business acumen that they had uh, that they developed throughout their journey, maybe they could have put that into what they're passionate about and accelerated, you know, their growth and success. So I don't know. I am a believer in finding your passion, but I'm also a believer in this journey is not a straight line. It's like there's zigzags across the board. And if you can take little bits and pieces of that and implement that into your passion, I mean, it can accelerate much quicker. Totally. Yeah, totally. And I think a mistake a lot of people make is they think, you know, obviously it's natural for us to focus on money and how can we provide for our family and be maximize being successful. But if you don't have passion underlying it, you're just going to set yourself up for failure. So, so your experience, uh, how did you go from Deutsche Bank to cannabis? Or was that like, I read somewhere that Deutsche Bank didn't want People to invest, and by the way, not not just them, and I'm not singling them out. There's a lot of the financial services companies at the time that they wanted you to divest from uh, investments that may be perceived under Finra as risky investments. So if you were if you were just to buy cannabis stock and you're part of you know that that company, they wouldn't allow you to own that. Uh, was that was that the case uh, at the time that you were? Uh, at Deutsche Bank, and what was well, it's a, it's it's a long story, but I uh, effectively was unceremoniously fired um, because I participated in an application. Um, my start, my start in the cannabis uh, cannabis world was I put a Pennsylvania legalized medical uh, in 2016. I didn't own any cannabis stocks. There wasn't really any cannabis stocks back then. There were some, but. Um, and, uh, I was working at Deutsche Bank. I was structuring complex derivatives. Um, you know, it was, uh, some, um, there's, there's, there's some shared, uh, experiences that I, that I took from that and, and I brought into the cannabis world, but, you know, completely different worlds. Um, and I, I saw this opportunity. One of the guys that I played basketball with at, at Penn and I decided let's form a group and put together a license or an application for a license. And if we get it, great. And if we don't, 
Um, and we tried. And, um, and so, you know, every bank, every broker dealer has strict outside business interest policies. I disclosed, you know, that, you know, I was putting together this application and they said, no, you can't because, uh, you know, uh, the reason was just nothing specific other than they didn't want any of their employees involved in that space because they didn't want to, um, uh, inherit reputational risk, which is BS, but whatever. Um, so, you know, I, you know, effectively my understanding was that, you know, that there was nothing wrong with applying for a license. And if I got a license then I'd have to make a decision with my life and I was ready to make that decision. Um, so we applied for the license. We didn't get it. Life moves on. It's a, you know, a very difficult way to start the cannabis experience, but a very valuable one in terms of, you know, uh, helping me to, to run one of the largest PE and VC shops in the, in the space and understand, you know, that experience. And it's a big part of what Merida does now is apply for these de novo licenses, um, and build these businesses from scratch. And in fact, I lost to Merida. They didn't know at the time, but I lost to, to, to Merida. And, and, you know, it goes to show you that, you know, you, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's not about the strength of your application, but. Uh, I wanted to squeeze that one in less Mitch, less Mitch hears this podcast, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, so, you know, everything was, you know, uh, moved on with life and, um, it, I guess, uh, you know, the company found out that I had applied and, you know, they effectively used it as an excuse to terminate me, even though I had no business interest because there was no business. So that's the boring story. Um, it put me, um, into a pretty dark place as I was transitioning into, you know, a world, uh, where I was outside of, uh, you know, kind of the white suit banking industry, um, you know, didn't have much on my resume that would, would, would help me, um, you know, outside of that space. I was living in Philadelphia. The world is much smaller in Philadelphia in the finance realm. Um, and, um, you know, um, actually was talking to a bunch of venture capital and private equity platforms in, in the area, in the Philadelphia area. And I had a pretty, um, you know, uh, I guess impactful meeting with a guy who is a partner at a, a local firm, a very powerful person. And, you know, he uh, was doing me a favor by meeting me effectively. And, and he basically said to me, look, you know, you're, you're 40 years old. You've sent, spent your, your your job on the sell side, and we would never hire somebody like you. The only reason we hire people is number one because they're young and cheap, you know. And there's a very traditional path in finance where you graduate from college and you work 120 hours a week in banking, and and then after that kind of two or three year period, you might go get an MBA, which I never did. I, for another reason, we'll talk about that. That's another story, but. Um, you go get your MBA, you come out of your MBA and you join a private equity or venture capital firm, or you make the switch at that early age when you're cheap to one of those platforms. And, you know, that's the rest of your, your career. And if you miss that boat, then you miss that boat. Right. And so, you know, he kind of was framing it as like, you know, you're not young and cheap and you don't have the only reason we would hire somebody you know, kind of more advanced is if they had a particular industry expertise. And this was back in 2017. And he said, the industry that you care about and you're most passionate about is cannabis. And that's not a real thing. 
Um, and it sort of set off a light bulb in my head. Like, well, you don't think it's a real thing. Um, but you know, I beg to differ. And so that led me to a path of, you know, getting to the seat that I'm at today. Uh, it's it's a great story. I, I love it because there's so many different nuggets in there. Number one is that one, you don't want to be there in the first place. And subconsciously and energetically, if you believe in that or not, you took the route to get you out of there into something else. I know it's, I'm sure it was difficult uh, and stuff because I, I went through different jobs where I was laid off or, you know, they couldn't afford me anymore and all that stuff. But I didn't care because I did at the time, but now looking back at it, I wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And then the other thing is in terms of, you know, the cannabis industry not being a real industry and and in expertise. So when I was in commercial real estate, I, I got into this, this company, a really small company in Lansdale and this broker who was running, he's like, took me out to lunch and he goes, look around you. You see every building here? I either sold or leased this building. I have no kids. I have uh, no wife. I have nobody. I want to mentor you. I'm like, man, this is a, a dream. I come in and he gives me the yellow pages. For you kids, it used to be a book called the yellow pages that, you know, it wasn't the internet. It was the, you have to go and look up numbers. And he's like, good old fashioned shoe leather. So I got lucky. I got my first deal, like, in a month and a half or two months, I made like $10,000 or $15,000. I'm like, I'm going to kill it in real estate. I did not sell another thing for another year. Luckily, I had some savings. I was like, wow, this doesn't. And I remember he told me one thing. He goes, you know what? Maybe you find a specialty, specialize in something. And I remember I got this gas station listing. And I had no idea about remediation or gas stations, none. But So I struggled. And I just created myself a niche and I said, I'll be the gas station guy. And there I had an expertise. So you're absolutely right in that having an, an expertise in a big industry is uh, is definitely a way to be able to differentiate yourself from, from other people. And I, your experience, at, at, you know, in the banking industry probably helps a lot in the, you know, the work that you do now. So what, what makes like a... Or how do you measure what a good investment is now that you're with uh, with Merida? Is there is there a sort of I know you guys have a committee uh, because I learned about that when I was uh, uh, talking to Mitch. But also besides that, is there are there certain criteria that are intangible criteria, or is there like a checklist that you go through? All right, you you have to have you know this much revenue, etc., uh, to make a, a decision. Well, Mitch claims that there's a 130 uh, uh, point checklist and rubric that is only in his head and none of us have ever seen, but um, I'm sure it exists. But uh, no, I think it's, 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 um, it's a process. Um, I think um, we're there's, first of all, there's lots of good investments and there's lots of good investments that we say no to all the time. And, you know, there's nothing um, more challenging, especially right now and raising money um, and being an entrepreneur and sticking your neck out and, and doing the riskiest thing that somebody can do, which is, you know, follow their passion, start a business and, 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 um, and, and sell yourself to others and, and try to raise capital. So 
Um, I have so much respect for all the entrepreneurs that we meet. We are also entrepreneurs. We're also building our own business. Um, we are also constantly raising money and deploying money. And there's a lack of institutional capital in this space. So we very much go through the same thing day in and day out that the entrepreneurs that are pitching us to invest in them, um, you know, we go through the same thing. So, um, you know, I think it's important to point out because, uh, you know, people think come to us and they pitch their deals and they think we're, you know, Goldilocks sitting on a, uh, on a pile of cash. And it's just not true in the cannabis space. It will be true at some point, but it is not true in the cannabis space yet. And it's not true for anyone. And we've gone from zero to 400 million of assets under management, which is not a lot by traditional investment standards. Um, but, uh, it is big in the cannabis space because, you know, it's a bunch of high net worth individuals and family offices and the institutional, conversations are happening but it'll you know accelerate once uh, federal legalization uh, or progress in that direction happens and that's why you know uh, right now is a very interesting time after the biden announcement last week but i uh i um uh, i'll pivot back to your question which is we are thematic investors and we invest in all parts of the cannabis space and um and, you know, it starts with the theme, you know, is this an area that we want to invest in? Um, and is this a puzzle piece that fits with one of the 75 other portfolio companies, um, that we, that we already have invested in? Um, you know, which makes us, you know, probably the, the most, one of the most prolific portfolios in the space just by sheer number of portfolio companies we have. And that is surprisingly a very, very big factor. I mean, of course, there's the normal stuff like, you know, can this business grow? Um, you know, do we believe in, you know, um, you know, the, the financial returns and the potential return to our investors over time? You know, is the management team, um, you know, uh, responsible and, you know, have they, um, built businesses before? Have they failed before? That is, you know, something that we look for actually is failure. And I went through it personally. Um, we all have been through it personally. And, you know, if you mean an entrepreneur that's never failed, then, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, what are they hiding here? Um, but, uh, um, you know, but to go back to theme, you know, we really, you know, we're really focused on a couple big themes and I don't want to make this conversation about Merida, but certainly, um, you know, a big theme for us is the medicalization of this industry. Um, you know, right now, medical marijuana is kind of a misnomer. I don't have to tell you that. Um, obviously, full disclosure, we've invested in your business and are very proud to have done so. Um, but the paradigm of people biohacking kind of blindly and um, depending on, you know, the bud tender to, you know, kind of make medical decisions, you know, that's got to evolve, um, especially as we enter into a world where, uh, insurance reimbursement becomes a reality, can, can become a reality for Medicaid patients in New York starting uh, April 1st, 2023. Um, you know, the reimbursers see the writing on the wall. They see the cost savings relative to, you know, what they've been spending on the opioid crisis. And um, it's all about economics for them at the end of the day, right? And so as we professionalize, as traditional healthcare comes into this space, how are we positioned for that? That's number one, a big theme for us. Yeah, um, the other, you know, kind of two other big themes I'll, I'll bring up now is, 
is the industrial applications of of the hemp fiber. Um, you know, it's a it sequesters more carbon from the atmosphere than any plant in the world, bar none. You take an acre of the Amazon forest and you take an acre of hemp, you know, that acre of hemp will sequester twice as much carbon from the atmosphere than 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 the Amazon forest. The only thing that sequesters more carbon from the atmosphere is our oceans. Um and that's not something people know. And the fiber is is very strong. It's uh strong, you know, it's and it can be used for so many industrial use cases, whether it's you know, the lining of of door panels for for BMWs and Mercedes and, and for certain models right now, whether it's textiles as a uh, more sustainable uh, replacement for for cotton that uses a lot of water to process, or whether it's um, you know one of our companies making uh, biodegradable wet wipes and diapers and feminine hygiene products. All those products are you know ninety percent petroleum based synthetic materials. You, you, you wouldn't know it. You use it once. You throw it away. It sits in the dump for thousands of years. Um, yeah, and, 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 and the things like hempcrete, right? And construction applications in our portfolio. Um, I could go on and on, but there's, you know, the the, the 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 commonality between the medical side and the industrial side, obviously very different. But we like investments where there's a huge total addressable market, you know, much bigger than the total addressable market of people getting stoned, you know, which we've, which we invest into, but much bigger than that. Right. And, you know, kind of getting as close, you know, to those, you know, kind of the root, the platform, the, the, the supply chain, the boring stuff of, of, of those themes and investing in them and, and kind of the, you know, the analogy is, you know, it's like the Dick Cheney analogy, you know, it's, you know, shooting, uh, you know, uh, good, you know, going, you know, uh, shooting, uh, 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 you know, bird pellets from, you know, a foot away. Right. Yeah. And then, so that's, those are kind of <laughs> the areas that we, you know, we, 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 we like them, you know, which we're most excited about. Of course, there's other areas. There's, um, you know, advertising technology as the industry, um, you know, comes under the, comes out of the shadows of, um, you know, not being able to to market uh, their businesses appropriately on the Instagrams and the Facebooks of the world, and and you know, building data aggregators that will will monetize that shift into normal advertising channels. That's another theme. Um, genetics is another big area that we focus on. So themes are where we start, and then if you fit within that theme, and you know. You look like, uh, you know, uh, a business that is removing a friction from the system. Um, uh, then, and, and as a puzzle piece with our other portfolio companies, that's sort of the kind of holy trinity of what right. we look for. And, and then Mitch's checklist comes in after that. <laughs> and, then, and then that magical checklist comes in. I, when you were talking about Dick Cheney, I, I thought you were going to bring up when uh, Sasha Baron Cohen had him sign his waterboarding, uh, like water can. I don't know if you ever seen that. He, he I, don't, I never saw that. Yeah, he has a show. I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to butcher the name so we will correct it, but it's called like This Is America or something like, like that on Showtime. So he's in character as a, like, is a, a, an IDF uh, Israeli special forces guy. And he's interviewing Dick Cheney and he's high-fiving him about all the waterboarding. And he had him sign his waterboarding, uh, like a canister or whatever you call it, the, where it pours water. And he was so proud to do it, too. It's it just fantastic. I highly recommend it. Super funny. That show. actually happened. Wow. 
It actually happened. It's hysterical. Um, so speaking of capital markets and all that, do you think that COVID had something to do with this capital market uh, sort of, uh, how, do I, how do I put this question? Uh, there, there was a lot of investment in the cannabis space. Uh, there was like, there's so many different green rushes that have come and gone, but there was a lot of investment in the space. There's a lot of companies that went public. There were SPAC mm-hmm. deals. There's all these things. And, and then all of a sudden it tightened up. Is it a combination of like COVID or these stocks plummeting or expectations that things were going to go, you know, uh, legal and they didn't? Is it one or all these different things? What are your thoughts about what, what kind of happened? Well, you know, look, um, there's been a lot of ups and downs in this industry. Um, you know, going back to that conversation I had with that venture capitalist who said the cannabis thing isn't real. A year later, he was calling me, asking me, you know, about what we were doing in the space and, you know, not necessarily how we could get involved, but kind of, you know, picking my brain because, you know, they had thoughts within their platform of getting, gaining some exposure, which I found, um, you know, a bit validating, but, um, you know, Canada legalizing, going federal, that created a lot of excitement. We didn't invest in in Canada by and large. Uh, we are actually now on the industrial side, but we didn't invest in any Canadian LPs because we saw, you know, just kind of a rush of capital. And, you know, right now we're going through a, a difficult time in the industry because there's not enough capital. And I'll, I'll get to why in a second. But the only thing then that is potentially worse for businesses is too much capital. And that's, you know, a lot of what you saw in Canada was too much capital and businesses, um, you know, building um, to a scale that was um, well in excess of what the market demanded, and especially when you take into account the illicit market. And that really caused a lot of those businesses to implode. Um, the U.S. market has been much healthier because there's been, you know, a very uh, methodical um, uh, growth on a state-by-state basis slowly and certain states have had more mature regulatory regimes than others. And California certainly has, you know, kind of been the poster child of, of how not to build an industry. Um, you know, whereas, you know, some of the medical oriented states, particularly, you know, back east where I'm at and, uh, and the Rust Belt have had a little bit more, um, you know, uh, uh, of a, a measured approach to how to grow, grow these industries. And, um, and what you've seen is you've seen um, a lot of growth in a very short period of time. Um, and then you brought up COVID. In COVID, that growth was accelerated uh, because, you know, it turns out when people were home, you know, they wanted to consume a lot of cannabis. And, um, and, and, it, was kind of norm- and it was essential. <laughs> and it was essential. And we have, you know, kind of demand has come back down to pre-COVID levels, um, which is not surprising, right? Uh, and so you had you kind of had this this spike, and a lot of businesses, and we were cognizant of this when we were when we were um, investing at the time. A lot of businesses were raising money to support growth based on a higher baseline that was not a reality, and so that has um, you know caused a lot of businesses to overshoot. In their ambitions relative to 
um, you know, what the demand is. But I think the biggest factor, and those, that, that's kind of minor, actually, you know, minor relative to the two other big points that I'll bring up now, which is if you look at cannabis stocks and when they peaked, it was uh, February 2021 when the, the, the night that uh, the Georgia Senate runoffs happened and it became clear that the Senate was going to take control of, uh, of, of the Senate. And the thought was federal legalization is going to happen. Like, you know, this is, you know, democratically controlled Senate. We've got Biden. He made some promises. And, you know, away we go. And so that was literally the peak of every cannabis stock. And since then, it's been a slow and steady decline because a lot of institutional investors, and I know hedge funds in the space that were investing in some of these MSOs, um, you know, that was their thesis, right? And as it became evident that this is going to take longer and um, you know, uh, betting on politicians to, you know, live up to their, uh, promises is, is not necessarily a good investment thesis. They pulled out. Um, and, and these cannabis stocks, and thankfully we're largely a private, we invest in private companies and we have some public exposure because we have sold some of our private companies to the publics. But, um, but the, you know, the, the public companies already were dealing with, you know, very low volumes because they're, you know, the U.S. companies are, you know, trading on Canadian exchanges where there's no liquidity. So if you had a Robinhood account, uh, you couldn't buy any Canada stocks, right? And so if a big hedge fund gets out of the space, it's going to have a huge impact on the stock price. And so that pre, that, that kind of predated sort of this macro, um, uh, macro environment that we're in, right? We're entering into a recession. Um, and that is a much bigger factor on the cannabis industry than I think people think because, you know, cannabis is just viewed as a risk asset. And every single risk asset has been, you know, red this year. You know, the only thing that's gone up in is, is gas prices, right? And oil, right? Um, that's the only thing that's gone up. I mean, even bonds, which are supposed to be a, 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 a risk off asset, have had their worst, worst performance in decades. And so, you know, you already have a capital constrained, uh, environment and market, you know, and it wasn't that cannabis stocks were overpriced. They were already, you know, kind of selling off into, you know, the, you know, the end of last year and the beginning of this year when all this kind of macro implosion uh, started. Um, so it wasn't that they were overpriced like Silicon Valley investments, but, um, but you know, you're, you're, you, you already had a capital constraint market because you don't have institutional investors in the space, right? You have, you know, uh, you don't have banks lending into these businesses. And then on top of that, you know, you're bucketed with, um, you know, the rest, everything else in the world that's going down, right? And, you know, and so that has really caused, a lot of investors that you know want to come into this space, and we have institutional investor conversations every day, and there's a lot of interest. But you know, the thing we hear is, you know, why do we want to uh, um, you know come into this space unless there's you know some movement on the federal uh, regulatory uh, regime and legalization, um, and this might be the bottom. But you know, why do I want to you know stick my neck out and and uh, guess when the bottom is and 
you know, and, and, and invest in this space now until you know, there's a little bit more clarity on, on, on some of the, the headwinds that the industry is facing. Um, and so that's why last week is, is pretty big, even though, you know, you know, uh, Biden, you know, didn't really do anything that, uh, you know, has immediate impact on the industry, but it has changed the mood in terms of, uh, you know, uh, investors looking at this space and, and starting to gain exposure to this space because it's a high growth industry. Um, you know, even if you, you have, uh, um, growth in certain markets going, uh, down a little bit, um, um, and high growth in other markets and, you know, being a regulatory expert on, you know, which states and countries do you want exposure to is really important. Um, but you know, even though there's a little bit of noise there, you still have the illegal market that's three times, four times the size of the legal market. And that transition, um, of those consumers, which are already there consuming cannabis products, um, you know, and that's ignoring all the, you know, kind of industrial applications that I'm so fond about. Um, as that transition happens, um, you know, the, the, you know, the growth, uh, will, will follow. And so, um, I think people realize that, but, you know, it's all about, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, federal policy movement and, you know, you saw it in the stock prices last week that were up 30 and 40% on that day. So there is a light at the end in the tunnel now, at least as you mentioned the mood and, and I agree with you, like what he, the action that he took is nothing, but the tone that he used, uh, I think, and, and me having conversations with people are like, oh, it seems like there's going to be movement. I personally am not sure if there's anything going to be done during this administration. Lame duck, midterm election, it was a nice gesture. But at least there is, uh, you know, the attitude is starting to change and there is some hope. Uh, but also, you guys have investments in picks and shovel companies that don't really touch the plant in any way. So it doesn't really make that much of a difference, but I think it does in, in attitude as far as the overall investment uh, criteria goes and, and correct? Yeah, I think I think that, look, we, we do have a lot of investments in companies. Actually, most of our investments are in companies that don't touch the plan. But, you know, uh, those businesses grow as the industry grows. So, you know, it, it all helps. Um, you know, Mitch and I debate um, uh debate you know the, the the politics all the time and you know we're generally in agreement here which is what happens next is what matters it's not what he was said last week it's what happens next you know um you know there's some people that are a little bit more conspiratorial in terms of the timing of the announcement right before the midterm elections and you know the last time he was making promises was also going into an election and you know i tend to be a half class full guy i think um, it increases the chances of the Safe Banking Act passing in December. Um, if that doesn't happen, then um, then it might take a long time for anything to happen. And I look, I think it's a bipartisan issue, and I think Nancy Mace has taken a leadership role. And there's a very good chance that you know we have a Republican-controlled Congress in the in the next uh, in the next for the next two years. And you know, I I actually you know. Um, you know, uh, think that, uh, that they might very well take this over the finish line, maybe not federal legalization, but, 
you know, some of the baby steps to, to get there, like I say, banking. But I think December would be crucial and what happens in December will be crucial. And, you know, I, am I betting my life that, you know, uh, that continued progress will happen in December? No, but, uh, but I'm paying very close attention now. So do you have any input into Meredith's social media posts at all? uh well twitter is uh is uh is mitch um i do have some influence but you know it's sort of like uh taming a wild animal um i'm uh i'm effectively our uh our linkedin voice at least my 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 uh my personal uh, account but uh yeah it's it's uh if, if you want me to uh um to push for uh, a certain post, let me know. But it, it may, it may, I may have limited powers. I, I, I think it's super entertaining. Uh, the, the Twitter posts are great, so uh, I just didn't know if there. Mitch said that there is a group, but I read them, and I believe that there probably is mostly, if not all, Mitch because it sounds like his tone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just imagine this. It's actually a tamed down Mitch. So, um, but uh, he tells it like it is. I mean, you know, I, and, and I give him credit for that. He's hundred uh, percent very, very passionate. And you know, he he was, you know, uh, we were very early in saying that this legalization thing was going to take longer than people thought, and that you know, over a year ago, we thought the Safe Banking Act has a chance to pass in a lame duck session. Um, especially if Democrats lose control of the Senate. Um, and that's sort of become the consensus. So, um, you know, but there's other barbs there that I necessarily wouldn't necessarily make if I was uh, in control of our Twitter feed. Got it. So in my book, I, I have a list of, uh, I think it's albums that I recommended. I know you took some, uh, uh, you had some issues with some of my recommendations. I don't know if you I got your book. <laughs> I got your book. Let me, I think I, I think I took notes. Um, so I'm just curious. I, we, can, uh, we can, we can talk about it now. And I'm not saying that it was a perfect list. And by the way, these things can change because, you know, sometimes I'm listening to, I don't know, a Metallica album that I left off the list. And I'm like, man, that's a great album. Let's say, or, or, you know, a Stevie Wonder album or something. I'm just looking behind my uh, myself to remind me. So it could change. <laughs> well, first of all, let me, yeah, before we, before I uh, dissect this list, um, let me give you a compliment, which is um, um, it's been great to, to support your business. I think it is um, um, so differentiated and is, going to be so much bigger than people think. And, um, you're an amazing leader. I think what you're doing on the, the genetic side, on the, you know, formulation side, on the biometric monitoring side. I mean, that's really like something that we've been dreaming about and thinking about before we ever met you. You know, nobody is, um, you know, uh, tracking from, you know, prescription and indication all the way through to the experience and, tracking all of that and understanding and making connections that'll be beneficial for research in the space and amongst so many other, uh, um, you know, beneficiaries. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're the manifestation of that. So, um, 
you know, we're really excited. I bring this back to your book. Um, I enjoyed well, reading I just, the book. I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say, uh, we're super grateful to have, to be in business with you guys. And one of the main reasons why, because you get it. And we've, we've talked to so many different companies and we have other investors uh, that came in and they don't, they don't get it. And I, and everything you just talked about as sort of this trifecta and how does it fit in and the medical and therapeutic aspects, that's the language we speak. So we're super grateful for to have you guys as our business partners. Yeah. And we're looking forward to um, giving you more money um, uh, in the near future. So, um, you you know, I read, I read uh, uh, the book cover to cover. I thought it was great. I thought it was honest. Um, You know, I think we were um, talking last week about the Huberman podcast and um, had some kind of uh, a big fan of his podcast, but, you know, I think we both shared a lot of, uh, you know, disagreement with how he framed cannabis as a medicine. And, um, um, but the big takeaway that I had from that, um, and whether you agree with it or disagree with it, I think it's a good lesson, but you know, the big takeaway I had from that is that cannabis is really personal. Um, and that's obviously the title of your book. And it's true. You know, like I, take cannabis to go to the gym my wife takes cannabis and she falls asleep within two seconds you know it's just um it's it, it is extremely personal and so you know encourage people to, to to check out the book but on the back in the back as you uh as you uh, originally asked um obviously you're a music fan i'm a music fan i go to a lot of concerts maybe not as many as you do and i can't see what t-shirt you're wearing today oh i, uh, I have a special t-shirt for you so this is a band called Bastard oh, Jazz. Oh yeah, oh, it's yeah. Les Claypool's band. And I was trying to figure out being you being a bass player. I was trying to figure out which band. I was like, I have a Primus shirt somewhere, but this is more current, so I wore my Les Claypool Bastard Jazz shirt just for you. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. He's more talented than than Les Claypool. I mean, obviously, a very different style from uh, most bass players, but. Um, so to go back to your list, you have in the back of your book, which if I ever wrote a book, I would do the same thing. I would put a book of my favorite albums, which for all the kids out there, yes, you know, some of us listen to albums from start to finish. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and you have uh, some music to experience, your playlist, right, in, in album form, which I absolutely love. And interestingly enough, I I think you and I are aligned in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot of these names I would have on my list. Um, I probably wouldn't have, um, as many, um, uh, you know, kind of, I don't have the same passion for rap, although I do love in particular eighties, uh, eighties and, and early nineties rap. And, you know, I'm, you know, uh, would be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, uh, paid in full by Eric B and Rakim, which is on your list. So I love that. Um, but, uh, the two biggest issues I have, and it's not many, but you know, the two biggest issues I have is number one, my favorite band in the world is Radiohead. Yeah. And you have a Radiohead album in here, yes. but it's not the one that you would think, right? It's, it's the yes. bands. Yes. And, uh, and that is a great album, but when you compare it to the seminal, um, albums that they, they came out with later, whether it's, you know, uh, okay computer or kid a or or uh in rainbows uh, you know i'm just like you know 
why why go with the bet? You know, it's, Kid A is personally my favorite. We're kind of yeah. Kid A and Nisiak, but you know, in Rainbows too is is also amazing. Uh, obviously, well, so this is more I'll, guitar I'll answer, oriented. I'll, I'll answer your question. Why? So here's my criteria. This is what I did. I did this a lot during lockdown of COVID. I have a room on my house. It's my music room. And what I would do is I would put an album, consume some cannabis, and see if it evokes an emotion in me that will cause me to draw or paint, because I also do that. And this album, I haven't listened to it in a long time. And this album, really, I was like, wow, every song there is connecting with me. And that, and like having Street Spirit, that it's such a beautiful song. So it's so good. I, I can't, I can't argue there, there are other albums, but in that moment, that moment in time, that's the one that connected to me. Okay. Well, I won't, I won't fuss over it because I'm just glad there's a Radiohead album on there. I'm also so happy that you picked my favorite Led Zeppelin album as your favorite Led Zeppelin album, of course, too. And, um, but the one, the one name that really stuck out and I, I'm just gonna let you guess because I'm sure other people have, have scratched their head. No, you want me to just tell Not you? Yet. Yeah. Tell me. Sade. Sade? Uh, or, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sade, Sade, the ultimate collection. Yeah. Sade, you. Smooth operator. Oh my God! What a beautiful album! All right, <laughs> it so just, tell me, it just stuck out. It just stuck right. out as tell like, me it one does not fit album, with the rest. One other album that sounds like that album. There, it's the well, most unique album of its kind. And I'll tell you this: I know you're a married, happily married man with three kids, but you throw in some Chardonnay on a date with a girl, with some wine, maybe some cannabis. Man, there's nothing that gets the uh, fire burning as a beautiful Chardonnay album. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I have diverse taste in music, man. Diverse taste in music. <laughs> you are a smooth operator. I'll give you that. Um, no, but I think, look, I mean, I gave you more compliments. I, I, I just thought it was thank you. It was a great list. All right. So I'll, I'll ask you, you're only, you're, you're leaving the house. Uh, I don't know, maybe, I don't want to talk about natural disaster, but you have to grab five albums and this is what you're going to listen to for a whole year and you can only grab five. What five albums would you grab? Okay, my five albums. Uh, I already mentioned uh, uh, Kid A. Um, so Kid A for sure, Led Zeppelin two for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the... I thought about my death and when I die, I, I would like, I don't want a ceremony. I don't want to be buried, but I just want, I just want the album, uh, Sigur Ross open parentheses, close parentheses, or the, the no name album played from start to finish. That's all I want. Um, so that would be one. Um, and it's the 20th anniversary of that album. So people don't know it. They should listen to it. Um, and then, uh, hmm. Let me think about this. Maybe, you know, a little bit more modern, I would say. Um, uh, Alt-J, I would say An Awesome Wave. Love okay. that album. Um, and my fifth um, would be, let's see, I would say, um, we'll go, 
we'll go old school and we'll go with uh, um, with the band, the band, the band, the band, the band. Great list, can't argue that. All great albums. All right, so we come to the point in the program where I'm going to ask you some questions. I ask all uh, my guests. So what has? Uh, oh, so please describe your first experience with cannabis. Let's see. My first experience with cannabis was uh, a really boring story. Um, you know, high school. Uh, you know, with my neighbor, and uh, I think we ate, um, um, you know, frozen TV dinners. I think he had Stouffer's frozen TV dinners that we ate all night long. We listened. Um, we listened to uh, Digital Underground. And, uh, we played video games and I thought, uh, I thought initially I was losing my mind and I thought this is the greatest thing in the world. So you had a good experience. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You brought, you brought a frozen dinner. So I'm, I'm a latchkey kid. I'm, I'm a little older than you, I think. Uh, but you know, it's the same kind of thing. You come home, your parents aren't home, you do your thing. And my was frozen dinners. And I remember when I would get the Salisbury steak in that, that was just like, yeah. It was great. And then my parents would buy me frozen cheesesteak, like steakum steaks, I think. And I would make those oh, yeah. with the Rosa Rolls. That was my, my meal until my parents yeah. get home for dinner. I, um, I know you're not, I know you're not asking this, but I just want to add, I, yeah, yeah. I think I, I don't really, I don't think I really fell in love with the plan until college. And, um, there was a, a friend of mine who, um, was from the West coast and introduced me to, um, Sublime, I'll probably add that to my list, and um, and three eleven, and we would listen to that on in, in our dorms. And anyways, long story short, and it ties to kind of why I'm so passionate about the industry and the medical benefits of the industry. Is uh, he uh, broke his neck between his, our freshman and sophomore year, and became a quadriplegic, and but amazingly, like was back in school in six months, and graduated, and had a very successful career. Passed away a few years ago, but really close friend of mine and uh he used uh, he, you know he used a lot of cannabis to deal with you know his uh his situation and um you know um and and so uh, you know in some ways i feel like i'm you know forwarding his legacy by um by you know supporting this industry and this plan so anyways i wanted to add that no thank you for sharing that i i mean that's that's my passion I mean, it's been my passion forever and I don't mind consuming cannabis for, you know, whatever purposes that you consume it for. But when I get, when I get emails, phone calls, texts, uh, meet people and are saying, this is what happened to me and this is what cannabis did. I mean, it just, it fuels you. And, and being an entrepreneur is, is difficult. Being an entrepreneur in the cannabis space is 10 times more difficult than yeah. being an entrepreneur in other spaces. But when you're connected to that passion we were talking about, that that's really what it's all about. Yeah. For, and you, and look, me. you've, you've helped countless people and, you know, the talk you just gave, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention somebody that we both care about a lot, Dr. Deb Kimless, who works on the Merida platform. And, um, and, you know, she obviously had, uh, uh, you told a story at the end of your talk, which I would encourage people to listen to. And, 
obviously you didn't name names, but, um, you know, uh, just a, one of many examples, I'm sure in your life where you really impacted and helps people in need. So, uh, kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So being a, a big music guy and we sort of just touched on this, but what, what was the very first concert that you ever attended? Um, so the first concert was the no code tour Pearl jam. Um, I, I was, uh, a, a senior in college, I'm very late in life. Um, for, I was a late bloomer in a lot of respects, but we'll leave that aside. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, probably been to about 35 Pearl jam shows. And, um, uh, the first one was in, uh, drove down from Philly to, uh, to Maryland to watch, watch them play. And, it was awesome. They had, they had an incredible show with the Trocadero back in the day, and I saw them at Lollapalooza when they first started. So, man, it was incredible. I, I remember <clears throat> I sort of turned around for a minute, and I turned back, and I got a big boot in my face because somebody was dropping, somebody that was uh, uh, crowd surfing, and I had a big <laughs> uh, print of a, of a boot in my face. But um, yeah. yeah. What, what was the last concert you attended? Let's see. Um, the last concert I went to was Local Natives. Um, an L.A. band uh, came to The Man. And, uh, you know, it's been probably two months since I've seen a show, which is a really long time. So <laughs> I'm wow. due for, for a what show. What an amazing so. place, The Man. I, I, I forgot. I saw I saw Metallica at The Man. And they played for Whoa. three hours there. It was so, so incredible. It was one of my favorite yeah. shows. And I saw Stone Temple Pilots open up for the Spin Doctors, which is really odd. But Spin Doctors wow. were really hot back in the day. Um, is there anything you're listening to today that, that is interesting that you want to introduce people to? Uh, I love the music questions. Um, let's see. I... Um, I re, I, you know, I love listening to new music. Um, and, uh, you know, I've gone through different channels to learn about new music. Um, you know, I listened, I used to listen to all things considered. I kind of graduated from that. It's an NPR show hosted by Bob Boylan. But, um, recently, you know, I've been listening to a show hosted by Mike D of the Beastie Boys on Apple music called the echo chamber. And, you know, it just kind of mixes and melds old music that I've never heard before with, with new music that um, is up and coming and, and uh, you know, international, you know, which I don't have necessarily as much world exposure, um, you know, versus, you know, kind of like what my sweet spot is, which is, you know, kind of, you know, the indie, you know, domestic scene. Um, and, uh, a couple of years ago, he spotlighted, um, a band out of London, which was sort of like a, you know, kind of acid jazz sort of band called the Comet is Coming. And, uh, and I, I would encourage people to, um, learn about, uh, about that band. Um, there's a saxophone player that, you know, he's involved in a bunch of bands, but his name is Shabaka Hutchings. Um, and he's been involved in, in a, in a lot of platforms. And then there's, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a saxophone player, a drummer, um, who recently, um, collaborated with, uh, um, 
with uh, the smile, which is Tom York and Johnny Greenwood's side project. Um, and then, uh, and then, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, a, 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 a synth, uh, 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 synth bass player. Um, and it's just the three of them and, and they just, they just crush it. So that's, that's, uh, kind of a new, uh, uh, music scene that I've discovered recently is that kind of London has the jazz scene. Super cool. I love, I love that stuff. I just, uh, the, the band called Morchiba just performed last night here and, uh, that's that's old school kind of acid jazz type of uh, of band from back in the day. Um, yeah, and it's if, funny. It, yeah, if, go ahead. If if you want a uh, uh, an album recommendation uh, specifically, they they just came out with a new album. But I would ha- I would suggest people start with trust in the life force of the deep mystery. Wow! All right, that's. It's funny you were saying, uh, you know, hemp clothing and all that stuff. So I went Sunday. I went to see the Colt, and the Colt had their T-shirt, and then you can buy their T-shirt in hemp. So I was like, super cool. You can buy like merch that's now made with hemp, and bands are promoting that as hemp, charging ten dollars more for it. But you know, hopefully it'll be less at some point. You know, just um, interesting side note there, which is uh, my brother-in-law sent me a picture of uh, of the. I, I, I my wife makes fun of me because, and I'm sure like you, when I go to concerts, my my guilty pleasure is to buy concert tees, um, and uh, I, I feel bad that I didn't wear a concert tee uh, today. I didn't think <laughs> about it, but uh, but my brother-in-law um, sent me um, the uh, I guess the. Uh, the, the apparel for the the band the national which of course you know and uh their their latest apparel is a, a shirt that just says sad dad <laughs> and i thought to myself i've been to a lot of national shows i kind of outgrew them and i and, and i feel like you know a little better about myself yeah so if i were to go to that concert and see a t-shirt that just said sad dads i, uh, I would feel terrible <laughs> that's funny yeah, I, I'm addicted to that. I've I've hundreds, I think, of uh, of concert tees. So I, I'm running out of room at some point. And I was leaving when I was getting my divorce. And I was leaving my my house. I left a bag of clothes, and my ex wife donated them. And I had a bag of T-shirts, like from my, I used to work at Tower Records, and they're all gone. Like T-shirts with a band called Citizen Dick is the one that stands out, which is from the 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 band from Singles that uh, now I went to eBay and they're selling for like three, four hundred dollars. So whatever. I'll, uh, I'll try to replace it. Oh, one great more movie. thing you just said. Great movie. Great movie. And uh, uh, speaking of Mike D, I'm listening to the Beastie Boys book right now on Audible. Fantastic. I did. I listened. I read the book. I listened to it. Both completely different experiences. Would encourage everyone to do that. Uh, oh, yeah, because they got guest, uh, you know, readers, basically. It's yeah. fantastic. Uh, well, I, so, I get. I, I'll give a book recommendation. Okay, which is there's um, there's an oral history. I'm trying to find it, but there's an oral history of the grunge scene in uh, uh, in Seattle, and uh, it's called. I don't. I don't see it, but it's called uh, uh, "Everything's All Right" or "Our Town's All Right." Um, I'll, I'm writing it down. Yeah, it's it's excellent. If you like oral histories. I I love all that stuff. And I love grunge music. And I, all, all those bands were 
Uh, actually, a, a band called Afghan Wigs is playing tonight. If you oh great that, back in the day, um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Um, you know, for me, um, you know, it's meant helping other people first. Um, you know, I, I have a personal relationship with it. You know, I probably consume, I'm not a big consumer. Um, I'm kind of what you would call a, a lightweight, um, but I'm more of a functional consumer. Um, typically, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but typically use it to, to, to go to the gym, to be athletic, um, maybe sometimes to play the guitar, but, um, but for me, first and foremost, it's, it's, it's helping other people and bringing relief to, to their pains. And you know, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I don't really suffer from anything, um, other than stress and, uh, you know, it shouldn't be discounted, but, um, but, you know, I, to help a chemo patient, um, uh, you know, which I've done numerous times and help them, um, to, uh, to deal with uh, chemotherapy and and to uh, have, you know stimulate an appetite um, uh, to help uh, you know uh, family members sleep better. You know, I joke about how my my you know Irish Italian uh, uh, Catholic family they thought it was crazy when I got into this space, and you know now they uh, <laughs> instead of praying before they go to sleep, they 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 they, they pop a gummy that I gave to them. Um, so it's really about helping people more than anything. And now my, my, you know, my new passion project is, you know, is the sustainability aspects of the industry. I think the industry has been very, uh, hasn't been very sustainable to the, to date. You know, you think about indoor grows that use a lot of energy. You think about, you know, all the packaging waste in the space, but this plant has the ability to, turn that paradigm on its head in a big way. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, multifaceted, but for me, um, you know, in an effort to, you know, address climate change and I think hemp is going to be a big part of it. So. Yeah. And I agree with you. And if you, I think they planted hemp in Chernobyl to help clean up the environment based on uh, from from the Chernobyl uh, you know disaster that happened so it's there's so many versatilities and and why not use hemp packaging for hemp and cannabis products it makes makes no sense that we yeah. standardize it's interesting actually one of our portfolio companies you mentioned Chernobyl Chernobyl is now actually you know located within the Ukraine and uh, one of our portfolio companies they, they process hemp and in in northern alberta and all their genetics come from the ukraine so they were actually um sneaking seeds across the border into polish territory um as the war was going on and, and were able to get those seeds over to canada and that happens to be you know obviously it's the breadbasket of europe but it happens to be the the home of the best hemp genetics in the world absolutely 100 percent agreed uh, glad you brought that up. All right. So final bonus question. Describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, my room. Okay. Um, 
I had a bunch of posters on the wall. Um, and the one, um, I had a poster of, uh, um, you know, the early days of, of Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, I think he was playing in Seattle and he's, he's about 25 feet in the air hanging from, from a metal, uh, uh, uh you know, kind of outrig, um, with the band playing down below and hundred, you know, thousands of people watching him. And, um, uh, so that one, but the, I think the, 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 out, the poster that I guess I'm, um, you know, most fond of or remember or, or remember the most was, uh, uh, Charles Barkley dunking a ball with Godzilla in the background because he was in some advertisement with Godzilla for one of his sneakers. And, um, I, you know, was obsessed with, uh, with Charles, uh, growing up and, you know, if you want to break into my house and, you know, 34 is part of the code and, uh, <laughs> you know, just, you know, love the guy to death. And have you ever met, uh, uh Charles Barkley? I met him once. It's actually a funny story. Uh, he insulted my sister-in-law and I just kind of laughed it off because I was so starstruck and my sister-in-law will, will, uh, will, will never uh, let me forget it. Um, the other person I met, which I, which I was, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't get starstruck much, but the, the other person that I met that, I, and this is a, a good story, maybe, maybe to end on, unless you have another question, but, um, the, uh, uh, in 2008, I made, a road trip to St. Louis to watch the Phillies play at the old, at the, it was the new Bush stadium at the time. And, uh, and I met, um, I was in an elevator at a, in the hotel we were staying at, and, you know, the elevator's going down and stops and the doors open and who walks in, but Harry Callis. And yeah, Harry Callis for people that don't know was the voice of the Philadelphia Phillies growing up and, you know, kind of was like a, constant soundtrack in my in my head growing up and you know uh and was the voice of nfl films i mean his you know voice was you know just uh you've heard it you've heard his name you've heard his voice whether you know the name or not let's just put it that way and uh and he walks in the elevator and it's 2008 and and i said uh you know i don't usually bother celebrities but i you know i'm a big fan mr callis and you know, it's just such an honor to meet you. And, and, uh, you know, I can't believe I'm sharing an elevator with you or something like that. And he turned to me and he, and he said, well, could be a special year. And then the elevators opened and he walked out and I stayed in the elevator, even though we got to the lobby and that's where I was getting out and the doors closed and it started going up again because I just lost my mind. And, uh, and as it would turn out, uh, you know, obviously the, the, Phillies went on to win that 2008 World World Series, and he called the World Series. And who was calling the World Series? We played Tampa Bay in the World Series, and who was uh, announcing for Tampa Bay? But his son. So it was you know very special for him uh, for multiple reasons, right? And then the, the next year he uh, he unfortunately passed away. Um, but it was uh, you know that was my you know. Tan- uh, sorry for all the tangents, but um, nah, I figured you would lo- appreciate that. Yeah, brush with celebrity. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I love that. All right, so you know where 
I, I don't know if you want people to get in touch with you or not, or uh, go to Meredith's website, but if somebody wants to contact or they have investment opportunities or want to connect, uh, where, where can they do so? Yeah. Um, so Meredith's website's a great place to start. There's, uh, uh, I think it's info at meridacap.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Mina Mishriki, and, uh, um, those are probably the two best channels, um, uh, to reach out. And, uh, we're here to, to grow this industry and, uh, couldn't be more excited about the future. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And, you know, thank you for being an investor and a partner and just an advocate for what we do. And I'm, I'm truly grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.